I'm going to backtrack just for a moment to show you a few highlights as Job uh, replied in Job 23.1. If you got your Bible in front of you, you'll notice at the heading of many of the chapters, you'll see who the speaker is. And it's not always Job. Sometimes it's one of Job's friends. It could be Eliphaz, the Temanite, or it could be Bildad, the Shuhite, who was the shortest man in the Bible. Remember that? Bildad, the Shuhite. And never mind. Anyway. And this is something Job said in Job 23, verse 9, that I want to just remind you of because it's so beautiful. And it has a question, but then there's confidence. Notice, these are several great statements of faith. We saw them last week, but they're worth looking at again. He says of God, when he acts on the left, Job 23, 9, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. But he knows the way I take, Job 23, 10. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread or my necessary food. But he is unique and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. Many times in the book of Job, you're going to see Job ask deep questions about suffering and pain and timing and the problem of evil in the world. And then you'll see these little gems of faith and hope, little gems of gold that we could put in our treasure chest. In fact, in the midst of Job's suffering and pain, some of the most significant, incredible and profound Bible verses that I know of that have ministered to me in my own Christian walk have come from the book of Job. And they're amazing verses about Job's priority, that it was God, but at the same time, Job had questions. A life of faith can allow for struggles and questions and yet still be a life of faith. I think it is silly for us to think that if we think something in our mind, we can't say it with our mouth. Now, I'm always wanting to be careful what I say to God, but I know he already knows what I'm thinking too. So sometimes I can be in this mode, Lord, I'm struggling with this and I don't understand it and I don't know what you're doing, but would you help me to trust you? In the midst of the I don't knows, in the midst of I don't get it and I'm not sure I can piece this together or you know, draw the right uh, lines and connect the dots, but I'm gonna place my trust and faith in you. The speeches that are recorded in these following chapters, chapters 24 through 27, if you pick up a set of commentaries, are debated. In fact, there are some modern scholars that believe that chapters 24 through 27 of Job are corrupted. They believe that there was a corruption in the transmission. I say hooey. <laughs> I say uh-uh. There's no textual evidence that they were corrupted, but sometimes scholars think that just because a flow of thought has shifted away or changed a little bit, maybe there was a corruption in the manuscript. And in this case, I'm going to say absolutely not. See, these speeches that were delivered in the book of Job are recorded as they were in the midst of pain and debate and questions and suffering. They are not exam papers that were submitted in the right font size and with the right uh, spacing and that kind of thing. They are emotional. They are stress-filled. They are questions that are asked. And so sometimes when you read your Bible and you see stuff like this, you just have to realize that it's, it's recording the very humanity that we all can relate to. And it's not always going to be perfectly symmetrical or uh, you know, kind of flow the way that we would expect. So I would just say, I mentioned that to you because you may see that in something that you read about the book of Job. Just put that aside. I don't think there's any compelling evidence for that view. I think what we have is we have the direct record of a man who questioned and a man who sometimes when he questioned, then he'd come full circle to have faith. He would believe, but it, he would end up at his belief through a whole minefield of questions. You ever been there before? <laughs> You ever gone through a, an hour or 15 minutes or a day where you had all your questions and then finally you heard a Bible verse or someone sent you a text or you heard a message on the radio and you're like, that puts everything into perspective, never mind. <laughs> I think that's how Job is sometimes. 
And I can relate to that in my humanity. I mentioned in my prayer that even the greater Job, the great Job, Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer, had his questions from the cross. My God, my God, why? That was a very human question. My God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer to the question. The answer to the question, why, is so that you wouldn't be forsaken. It's so that you could be reconciled to God. Amen? That's why Jesus went through what he went through. But he still had his questions, and we do too. We've been presenting another idea before us in the book of Job, and that's the idea of redemptive suffering. And that is that sometimes when we go through suffering, God has a plan through that suffering, and that suffering may be redemptive in your life or in somebody else's life as they watch or the after effect. Job said, after he has tried me, I will come forth as what? As gold. Now, the refining process for the the gold is a difficult one. It's the gold is heated and the dross is scraped off. And we've heard about the silversmith and we've heard about that process. And we've even, some of us who have been in the church for some time, even used to sing a song, Refiner's Fire, my heart's one desire. Oh, you don't realize what you were singing, did you? Is to be holy, holy. God says, okay. See, if you want to be holy, you're going to get scraped. And sometimes it's going to be hot. And sometimes it's going to hurt. And all God's people said, ouch. Right? Sometimes we say that here. We don't always say the amen. We just say the ouch. Right? Because sometimes that's what scripture does. And so Job opens uh, Job 24 by saying, why, Job 24, why are times not stored up by the Almighty? And why do those who know him not see his days? Two thoughts here. One, I think Job is saying, how long is my trial going to last? Now, any of you have ever gone through a physical trial, an emotional trial, uh, a difficulty, whatever the cause may be, that's usually a question at the top of my list. How long is this going to last? If it's a physical malady, sometimes some physical things feel like they're going to last forever. And the good news is that trials do come to an end. And sometimes when we have something going on in our body, we uh, even unexpectedly, sometimes it goes away or we get a remedy for that. We pray about it and God gives us a remedy. And I'm not saying that always happens. Some of you have lived with ongoing uh, physical maladies and pain and my heart goes out to you. But we even ask that emotionally and spiritually sometimes. We ask, how long is this going to last? How long will my trial be? I think the second thing that Job is asking, as we'll see from the context of Job 24, is when will the wicked be judged? And the broader idea is how long will the problem of evil go on until you finally remedy this, Lord? He's saying essentially this, when is the day of the Lord coming? And the day of the Lord, if you've not heard that phrase before, is a concept uh, taught in both the Old and New Testament by several of the prophets and several New Testament writers. And the day of the Lord is another way to say the return of Jesus. And when Jesus returns in what I believe is going to be a darkened sky and a light illumines the sky and all the angels with him, he's going to judge the unbelieving world. But before he does that, he's going to rescue his people. And the people of God, even at that time, are going to be saying, how long, O Lord, until you, uh, you recompense the world for the blood that they've shed, for the martyrs that they've killed? And there's so much more that we can say even tonight, things that we don't even know are going on in the world that are utterly evil. That's kind of what Job is saying. When will my trial end, one? And number two, when are you going to judge the wickedness in this world. See, that's why we've called this whole series in the book of Job the problem of evil. It's a problem. But we've also called it and the power of the gospel. Because the problem of evil is satisfied or dealt with in the power of the gospel. What do we do when we're waiting? A couple Psalms. Flip over just to your right is the book of Psalms, Psalm 13. Psalm 13. I want to show you a few verses there. This is a short Psalm of David, Psalm 13. Many of the Psalms are 
lament psalms. They're, they're questions that the psalmist writes to God. David had his questions. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, a very spiritual, faith-filled man, he said, Psalm 13, verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, Psalm 13, 1, will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Turn over to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. This uh, particular psalm is uh, also a beautiful psalm, and it is a psalm of David. And I want you to see this idea of patiently waiting on God when we consider the idea of how long. When David writes in Psalm 40, verse 1, he says, I waited, what's your Bible say? Patiently. Don't pray for that, by the way. Don't pray for patience. Just, just read the verse. <laughs> I waited patiently for the Lord, not for my circumstances to change, not for my burden necessarily to be lifted. I waited for him, first and foremost. He is the answer. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. And what did he do? He, God's the one doing it, brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. When we did the men's retreat, if you turn back to the book of Job, we studied uh, the book of Isaiah. The theme verse was those who wait for the Lord. And it, the, the idea was being renewed was the, uh, the theme of the men's retreat. Our uh, theme verse, Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Some of you will take note that Isaiah 40, 31 in some translations is those who hope in the Lord. And then some translations have it, those who wait for the Lord, because the Hebrew word for wait and hope are the same Hebrew word and can be translated as wait or hope because it has the same idea. It's a, it's a, it's a dual meaning, if you will. So when you think of Isaiah 40, 31 and you picture the eagle soaring, the waiting on the Lord is, could be rendered this way. It is hopeful waiting or hope-filled waiting. So when you think about those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength, they will mount up with wings like eagles, the waiting is hope-filled waiting. See, I'm a Christian, so what I'm waiting for ultimately is the return of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen? So as I wait for him, my, my waiting is hope-filled. Now the terrain gets bumpy, life can get difficult and messy, but Jesus is coming, Wail. Isaiah 13, 6 says, For the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Malachi 4, verse 1 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And that day is coming, and it will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither them, uh, neither root nor branch. The day of the Lord is coming. But Job says, how long, oh Lord? Now, on my good days, I'm not usually saying that. It's usually on my bad days. Usually when I jump, like the other night, I jumped on the 15 freeway. We were, uh, we're actually going to, uh, this is a confession. We're going to Del Taco, all right? So I left the church and I said, I'm gonna get on the 15 freeway. And you know how they're doing the construction over here? And, and it was all backed up and it was 9.30 at night. And I said, how long, oh Lord? Till I can get my taco. I want to put my taco, get my taco on. <laughs> What's going on? Brake lights. And then I started doing this. This is my faith-filled driving experience in Corona. 
I was like, where, are, where did all these people come from at 9.30 on a Sunday night? I'm going to Dell. <laughs> I'm going... <sighs> anyway, you guys can relate. <laughs> and I said, how long? <laughs> oh, Lord. And I was crying and whining, and about five minutes after that, it all broke up, and we started to go in. I was like, okay. <laughs> I waited. You guys remember that? For the Lord on high. He heard my cry even about Del Taco. I have no idea if he heard, even cared about that. <laughs> Maybe that's why there was traffic. I didn't need to eat Del Taco at 9.30 at night. Anyway, the ESV of uh, Job 24 verse 1 says, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Why do those who know him never see his days and then if you have an NIV, verse 1, Job 24 says, Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Now, I think every Christian who's ever lived for 2,000 years of church history has anticipated the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about the fact that there's some days that I long for that coming more than others. Usually when I look at the world and see the evil in the world, I long for the second coming and I say, Maranatha, O Lord, come. But the reason that God has not come yet is recorded in 2 Peter 3. You don't have to turn there because you all know the concept. It says that mockers will come in the last days with their mocking and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter says they overlook a couple of things. God did intervene in history. He made the heavens and the earth. He flooded the world with water. And the heavens and the earth currently are being reserved for fire for the day of the Lord. But keep this in mind, brethren. To the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack about his promises as some people consider slackness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any perish, but all come to repentance. Do you know why the day of the Lord has not come yet? Because God is patient and he doesn't want people to perish. And if somebody's prayer in the 1960s or the 1670s was answered and Jesus came, you ain't in the kingdom, brother. Sister, some of you got saved in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And, and we don't think about this often, but the Lord's patient is your, patience is your salvation. Amen? So we, we always want to be quick with the clock when we're personally, you know, we have an agenda. Can we, get, can we get this going now? We've waited long enough. No, the Lord has other people he wants to bring into the kingdom. And what he said is, you know, as to the times and the epics that the Father has set by his own authority, essentially, it's none of your business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, not for you to know that. But you're going to get power and you're going to be my witnesses. Now, if you were a, an apostle in the first century waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon the church... Could you have imagined 2,000 years of church history and someone in Corona, California becoming a Christian? No way. See, that wasn't their thinking. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel so we can sit on your right hand and your left hand? Mama, ask him if we could sit on the right hand or left. Can you do something for my sons, Jesus? What is it? I want one of them to sit on your right hand and the other on your left hand. Woman, you don't know what you're asking for. <laughs> She goes back to her son, sorry, boys, <laughs> right? Because what were they thinking? The immediate, their own time. It is so hard to widen out my perspective just in my personal life, let alone the kingdom of God, let alone what God might want to do in a country that isn't, hasn't even been reached yet. I'm so worried about my little life here in Corona that everything's cool for me, right? And that, you know, God's doing what? No, God is God. And God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. He has given evidence of this by raising Jesus from the dead. 
This is Psalm 94. I'm going to move quickly because we'll run out of time. But this is verse 3. The psalmist says, How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked rejoice or exult? They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people. They afflict your heritage. They slay widows and the stranger. They murder the orphans. And they say, the Lord doesn't see. Nor does the God of Jacob pay heed or attention. Psalm 94, first several verses. You guys might remember remember that in Revelation 6, the fifth seal of the seven seals is martyrs underneath the altar, Revelation 6, 9, and 10. And they say to the Lord, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, Revelation 6, You can look at verses 9 and 10. And they were told to wait, to rest for a little while until the full number of those who were to be killed as they were came in. And so they waited and they rested in the Lord. We uh, did a trek from uh, Corona to Arizona. My youngest is attending a school in Arizona, Grand Canyon University. And we we went out to a wedding with a family that a long time uh, members here, and they're really family to us. And so we went out for the wedding of their daughter. And uh, it's a long drive, you know, five and a half, six hours to get to Phoenix. And I noticed as we were driving along the 10 freeway, there were many rest areas or rest stops. You guys have seen those. I don't know how many miles they're apart, but they're, they're, uh, they're there strategically if you need to pull over with the long stretches of desert if you need a restroom or if you just need to stretch your legs or, you know, you got a dog in the car or whatever, uh, there's rest areas. And it just, it just struck me, and you guys just take it, this for what it is, but as I'm going about my day, as I'm journeying in life, I've got to take my rest stops. And what I need to do is pull over and get refilled with God's grace, amen? I need, I need my rest areas. This, this life can be so challenging at times. And so as believers, we need to find those places of rest and quiet, even if it's five minutes with your Bible before you, do it. Now, Job is gonna give us insight. We've done one verse. (laughs) At least I'm consistent. Okay, Uh, Job is gonna give us some insights into what the wicked do. Some, Job 24.2 remove the landmarks, they seize and devour flocks. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. When a person in the ancient world moved a boundary marker, the book of Deuteronomy said you don't do that because if you moved a boundary marker, it was like stealing somebody else's property. You didn't mess with boundary markers. And Job says there are some who remove landmarks. And what do they do? They seize and devour flocks. Not everyone gets the sentence they deserve on this earth. And injustice can even uh, go both ways, convicting the innocent, as we've seen in many cases. Robert Frost defined a jury as, quote, 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer, close quote. Sometimes that's what we see in the justice system, right? Oh, oftentimes they get it right, but not every time. And, and even that is something we would call the problem of evil. Proverbs 23.10 says, Don't move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless. What is Job doing? He's giving some feet to the problem of evil, but he's also appealing to his personal experience because in Job 1 verse 3 The Bible says that Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He was the greatest man of the East. But in his calamity, people groups came in, they came upon his estate, and they stole his animals or burned them up and killed his servants. And of course, his children were killed as well. And so Job is lamenting evil, but don't, don't you find that it's easier uh, to go down the evil list when it's happened to you? You hear a news story, and you can kind of just push yourself back from, oh, that's terrible. 
There's a fire over here. There's something over here. This happened over there. Until it's you. Heard a story of a pastor. He was in his office and the secretary, he told the secretary, don't, I don't want to be interrupted. I'm, I'm studying and phone call uh, came from the secretary and he got really short with her. And, and the secretary said, pastor, I need to tell you that a little girl got hit out by a car in front of the church office. And he said, I told you not to bother me. And the secretary said, it's your daughter. And that changes everything, doesn't it? And Job, you know, the problem of evil, it's a little easier to take when we watch a news report or hear something off in the distance. But Job says they drive away the donkeys. Job had all these female donkeys of the orphans. They take away, the, they take the widow's ox for a pledge. Now you say, Pastor Michael, what is he talking about? Everybody turn back to Job 22. Eliphaz the Temanite, who started off kind of civil to Job, this is what he said against Job in Job 22. He said of Job, you have sent widows away empty, 22.9, and the strength of the orphans has been crushed. Now I put before you and I said, what evidence did Eliphaz have that Job did this? Job was a righteous man. He was a good man. Where did he get this? Did he pull it out of thin air? Or is it possible that what Eliphaz saw is that after Job's life crumbled, widows and orphans came to Job and asked him for help and he no longer had the means to help them because his animals, which represented his estate, and all that he had that made him wealthy and allowed him to help the poor was gone. So can you imagine the scene? And this is my view, but I think it's a pretty solid speculation. Imagine this. Imagine Job sitting on the ash heap. He's lost everything. His buddies have come. They're debating the why question. And a widow comes to Job and says, I need your help. And Job says, I have nothing. But, but there was an ox that was pledged to help me and my family. That ox is gone. There were donkeys that were dedicated. Some of the donkeys, remember, livestock was like your wealth in the ancient world. It was like having currency. Those are gone. I don't have those anymore. Orphans walk away hungry. You see, when evil happens to an individual, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It ripples out. And I think that the poor comforters, Job's so-called friends, watched this and they said, that's what you've done. And Job's like, I don't have anything to give them. What can I do? They took everything from me. Now imagine if you're Job and you stop for a minute and you say, God, why? Now I watched the orphan walk away and I used to be able to help him. I watched the widow walk away and I used to be able to call one of my servants and she'd be fed for a week. Why? You can imagine the depth of those cries. Verse four, Job 24. They push the needy aside from the road. The poor of the land are made to hide themselves together. World history has been littered with the poor being abused. Job 24, four. Mistreated, taken advantage of. The question hovering over the text, don't forget, is how long, O oh Lord? How long until you recompense people for doing this to the needy? How long until you uh, pay back these wicked people? Look at verse five. Behold, as wild donkeys in the wilderness, they go forth seeking food in their activity as bread for the children in the desert. They harvest their fodder in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked. They spend the night naked without clothing and have no covering against the cold. They are wet with the mountain rains. They hug the rock for want of shelter. The abuses of power lead to a pathetic and moving picture of human distress. You ever gone home on a cold night? A couple hours before that, you see a homeless person walking the streets. It drops into the 30s, and you're like, where is that person tonight? Where do they find shelter? Do they have a covering? We can be so calloused. One writer says, here are men and women made in the image of God, but driven out of civilized society. 
marginalized, wandering, lost and like wild donkeys in the wilderness, slaving away to find food, having to send their children to find scraps of food on the rubbish tips of society as some do in third world slums. The wicked man has a big, beautiful, prosperous vineyard, but all these marginalized people can do is hope to catch a few gleanings from it, verse six. They, they hope that there's a few scraps that they can fill their bellies with. They lack the basic clothing and protection needed for life. And many of this happens because of greedy, power-hungry, wicked people. And Job says, how long? I mean, some of us, were flipping channels and we can't even watch those programs. It's bad enough to see the, the programs about the dogs that are, you know, don't have a home, let alone when you have to look at people who are starving, who live in the same world as you. And some of us, honestly, we don't want to look at it because then we don't have to think about it. See, these are things that bother the heart of Job, how much more the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was in prison and you came to me. I was sick and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. When did we do that for you, Lord? See you in those circumstances. And Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it for me. Can I ask you, how do you think we in the modern church are doing with extending that kind of grace? We were talking in the prayer room room earlier that that kind of grace extended is often a bridge to get to the gospel. Uh, A woman has recently wrote a book called uh, Hospitality or The Gospel Comes with a House Key and she's trying to argue that the Christian church needs to consider once again hospitality and opening up our Bible studies in our houses to people who don't know the Lord. We can be greedy with our stuff, with our time. And Job looks around and he says, there's people hugging rocks for shelter. And Job can appreciate it more now that he has nothing. He says, others snatch or seize the orphan from the breast and against the poor, they take a pledge. One writer says, verse nine describes a crime that is climactic and the most heartless crime of all. They force the poor to sell their children as wage slaves, a collateral for the loans they need for survival. They have to pledge a defenseless orphan. Children are sometimes forced to become child soldiers, work in slave labor factories, or even become sex slaves. All because the wicked rich place no value on life but only on what satisfies their greed and lust. And Job looks at the world. He looks at sex slavery when men and women can do such unspeakable things to underage kids, all for their pleasure. And Job says, how long, Lord? They cause the poor to go about naked without clothing. They, Verse 10, they take away the sheaves from the hungry, just the the little that they have. Within the walls, they produce oil. They tread wine presses, but thirst. You can imagine here is a servant who's literally stomping on the grapes to make the wine, but he can't drink any of it because they say, no, 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 none of that's for you. You're just, you're just to press it down so we have something to drink for those of us who can have the wine. You don't get any of that. And so he has to sit there and tread the wine press, but be thirsty. From the city men groan, and the souls of the wounded cry out. And then notice this, yet God, he doesn't pay attention to folly. And and Job says, look, this is heavy, folks, but this is the book. Why, Lord? How long will this go on? The poor go about with no clothing, no covering, Flip back to Job 22. This is another accusation that was made against Job. Look at verses five through seven. Eliphaz the Temanite said to Job, is not your wickedness great? 22.5, your iniquities without end? You have taken pledges of your brothers without cause, stripped men naked. To the weary, you have given no water to drink. And from the hungry, you have withheld bread. 
Could it be once again that this was all the result of everything that Job lost? You know, when I originally read this and put it before you, I thought, well, these are probably just lies or stories that they heard about Job. But could it be that these were people coming to Job that typically could get help from him and he had no longer the ability to help them? The irony of the marginalized is that they are surrounded by food and drink, but they remain hungry and thirsty. Thirsty. This writer says it is reminiscent of Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath or Guthrie's song, Do Re Mi. These people are dying and groaning, crying out for help, but God does nothing. Why not? For 400 years, the people of God suffered in Egyptian bondage. Did he hear their cries? We know he did. Why did he wait? And then... Then he calls Moses and he says to Moses, I've heard the cries of the people and I am going to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. You can see this in Exodus 2, 23 through 25 and Exodus 3, 7 through 10. And then God says, you know, you could almost read between the lines. Well, how are you going to do it, God? Well, Moses, I'm going to send you. I said, you say, what? <laughs> you want me to be the answer to the problem? I just want you to take care of it, God. No, I'm sending you. But I can't talk... <laughs> talk really well. Well, you have a brother. He can speak. What other excuse can I come up with me? Here I am, Lord. Send him. Here I am, Lord. Send her. Where can I write a check? No, 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 no. Moses, I'm sending you. You're going to be the answer. You're disgusted by what you see. You don't like the world the way it is. All right. Somebody comes to us in ministry. This has happened over the years. I really think it would be, Pastor, it would be a great idea if we started this ministry because I really think it could benefit a lot of people. And we say, good, are you ready to start it? No, 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 I want you to do it. Oh, do you know, <laughs> I could tell you some stories about people, this is many years ago, who left our church because they came to us and wanted us to start another ministry. But it was just a suggestion in the suggestion box. It wasn't, I'm going to do anything about it. I want you guys to do it. And we're like, no, no, no. Maybe God's put that on your heart for you to do it. Is that in the consideration here? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I get, I'm the idea guy. I, I'm, not, I'm not walking these things out. No, I'm the anonymous suggestion box. You should do this. You guys should do that. Have you ever thought of this? It's like, yeah, we have, but... We need some help in areas we already have established where we can't even get people to help there. Hmm. Anyway, that's, that's enough of that. <laughs> 13. Others have been with those who rebel against the light. Darkness of light, uh, I'm sorry, metaphors of light and darkness are all over the Bible. They rebel against the light, Job 24, 13. They do not want to know its ways nor abide in its paths. The murderer arises at dawn Job's still talking, lamenting evil. He kills the poor and the needy, and at night he is as a thief. The eye of the adulterer waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me, and he disguises his face. With the metaphors of light and darkness, Jesus said there are people who love darkness rather than light because their deeds are Evil, therefore, they don't come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. Please hear what I'm about to say. The people of the world that reject the gospel, once they've heard it in clarity, do not reject the gospel for lack of evidence. They do not reject the gospel because they don't think that the science points to a creator. Give me a break. They reject the gospel because they want to stay in the darkness. Because God is the God of light. And he wants you to be in the ways of light. Would you notice the mention of some major commandments? The thief at the end of 14. The Bible says don't steal, commandment number eight. The murderer, beginning of 14. That's commandment six. The eye of the adulterer is commandment number seven. We all know those commandments say you shall not, thou shall not. Don't do that because when you do that, it's a lack of love for God and your neighbor. And the pictures that are painted here are quite obvious. People are sneaking around 
and they kill somebody for their own gain. Or they steal something from somebody for their own gain. Or they cheat with someone else's spouse for their own moment of pleasure. In the dark 16, they dig into houses. They shut themselves up by day. They, don't, they do not know the light. For the morning is the same to him as thick darkness. He's, he's familiar with the terrors of thick darkness. It's all that he knows. And Job laments the world. And he says, this is what I see. They stole my stuff. They st my kids ended up getting killed. They burned up my property. Why? This is all they know. All they know is darkness. Now, we all can remember a time when darkness was our friend. You were formerly darkness, Ephesians 5, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and kindness and all those fruits that we desire. This is in Ephesians chapter 5. It's like we were formerly darkness as like some of the performers today, formerly known as. That's us. I was formerly known as this, but that's not who you are anymore. Now you walk as a child of the light. Amen? Because God is light. And hear what I'm about to say because this is so huge for all of our lives. Whenever you become a child of the light and your life becomes an open book showered by the grace of God, your conscience can be clean because you can live your whole life in the light because you're not hiding anything. If you're sneaking around and you don't want anybody to know who you talked to or where you were or what was going on and you're doing the whole song and dance, you're in darkness, man. Now, I'm not saying you're in total darkness and you're not saved. We've all been in that spot before, right? Back to in a corner and we lie like a little kid and then we're like, wait a minute, I'm in my 40s. What's going on here? Why did I do that? Hey, we, we know that. But as a pattern of life, once you become a Christian, you don't need to live in the darkness anymore. Your conscience and your life can be free because your whole life can be lived in the light. And when you have a marriage built on that and you have a walk built on that and you have a business built on that and you have friendships built on that, you don't have to hide. You don't have to put on disguises. You don't have to hide your phone. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You know why? Because you're free. You don't have to play games anymore. You can be truly a trustworthy person because you let the fear of the Lord and the light of God illumine your path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. I don't want to wander from your commandments. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This is what it means to be free. This is what Jesus is talking about. But Job looks at those people and he says, yeah, but they seem to be getting away with it. They shut themselves up and then darkness is their friend. They sneak around. They are, but notice how this shifts now, but they are insignificant on the surface of the water. They're like some of that foam that just gets blown by the sea winds. Their portion is cursed on the earth. They do not turn toward the vineyards. The idea is no one goes to their vineyards anymore. Once they die, their land is desolate. Nobody even cares about it anymore. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. Simply put, he's saying just like you'd see snow up, uh, if you ever go, out, go to Lake Arrowhead and you see snow on the ground and the sun comes out and that, how quickly does the snow just melt? It evaporates, right? And, and of course, if it was a little bit of snow, it doesn't take but a couple of hours, you know. You, you finally, in Southern California, snow, there's snow. It's like an inch of it. Sun comes out, gone. What Job's saying is that's how the wicked are. It seems so long. It seems sometimes it goes on forever. How long, oh Lord? But Job's come full circle. But you know what? <laughs> They're consumed like snow waters. This is sad, but verse 20 says a mother will forget him. The worm, picture of the grave here, feeds sweetly until he is remember, remembered no more. He goes down in the grave and he's worm food. 
and wickedness will be broken like a tree. You could imagine. These are all images or metaphors. Imagine you have a strong-looking tree and a lightning strike hits it, or it's a really windy day and a tree that looks so vibrant and stable falls over, or a branch. Have you ever seen one of those big branches fall into the middle of the road? And the tree looked like it was like, you know, so solid and insurmountable and a lightning strike or a fierce wind and gone. Job says, that's how the wicked are. I think what he's trying to do is encourage himself. I think he's saying, okay, I agree with you guys about the wicked. I just think it takes too long. <laughs> he says, the wicked wrongs the barren woman and does, not, does no good for the widow. But he, and this is now God, drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. This is a New Living Translation of verse 22. Little difficult verse to translate, but the New Living says this. God in his power drags away the rich. They may rise high, but they have no assurance of life. When God says it's over, it doesn't matter what the rich man does. It doesn't matter what the wicked man does. You know, we, we've heard all the news stories about stuff going on. And have you ever done this? Have you ever just Googled how many wealthy people or movie stars died in the last five years? And then you'll start to see the faces come up. And you're like, oh, I didn't. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh. And this is what Job is saying. He's saying, look, to me, it feels long sometimes. But you know what? In reality, in the big picture, of eternity and God, life is short. And even though my trial feels long, God's going to take care of it. He, he provides them with security, 23, and they are supported. Everything they have from common grace comes from God. The air that they breathe, the houses that they can build, the land that they buy. But you need to know that his eyes are on their ways. See, they experience some level of security in quotes. And it feels like sometimes God isn't watching them, but his eyes, end of 23, are on their ways. He does see and he does care about their actions and the damage that they cause to others. And the question Job has, like I have oftentimes, is then why doesn't he act now? <laughs> There's an old saying. Someone once said, why doesn't God wipe out all the evil in the world right now? And someone responded, well, if he eradicated all the evil in the world right now, I don't think there'd be very many of us left. Would you agree? You see, there's backroom deals and people cheating on their taxes and spouses that God sees sinful as well. There's gossip that has destroyed people's reputations and caused divisions in families. There's people who have ripped off uh, people wearing suits and white collars and, and they're doing crimes every day. If God eradicated all the evil in the world right now, if that's your wish, you better be careful. <laughs> oh yeah, I can differentiate some things, certainly. I can say God will at least deal with that one or that one and I don't understand it all. But here's what I do know. They are exalted a little while, 24. Then they are gone. Moreover, they are brought low like everything gathered up, even like the heads of grain, picture like a flower that droops over, or a head of grain, they are cut off. They droop, and it's over. Genesis 15, 16 says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God's saying there's gonna be a time when it's complete, and I deal with them. Romans 2.5 says, but because of the, your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God knows everything. And he will deal with it all on that day. His system of justice will be 100% accurate 100% of the time. And finally, Job says, now, if it's not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? Job ends with a confidence. What I just said is true.
Now, how do we wrap this up? Well, I think this is part of what we say. That in the cross of Jesus Christ, for all of us who are sitting here who are Christians tonight, here's the really good news. Jesus entered into our pain, into our suffering and evil world. And when he went to that cross as the greater Job, he was the ultimate innocent sufferer and he died on the cross to take my punishment, to take my wrath, to bear my shame. If Jesus didn't come, I am in deep trouble. But he came on a rescue mission. He's the ultimate Moses. He's the greater Job. And he came to rescue me from sin. And he came to save me from wrath and from death. This greater Job, Jesus, shared words about eternal life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son. He's given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And finally, if you turn all the way over to Matthew, and I'm going to ask Shane to come on up uh, to the front. Matthew 16, this is what the greater Job said, the one who would suffer at the cross. He said these words, Matthew 16, 24. 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 1625 of Matthew. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what would a man be profited if he gains not a city block, not if he owns his own island, if he gains what? The whole world and forfeits his soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. And then he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the next chapter describes Jesus's transfiguration six days later. They got a foretaste of the coming kingdom of the glorified Christ of the return of the Lord. And this glorious one died and took my judgment. He's the greater Job. And you know, he's coming again for a second time, not in reference to sin. He's already dealt with sin, right? One time for all. Well, what's he coming the second time for? He's coming to rescue his people and bring judgment on the world. And that's what we look to. And we want to see as many people come into the kingdom as possible. People just like me and just like you. Amen? We want to preach the hope to sinners. We're all in that category. We were all once in darkness. And we preach the hope. We put it before people. We rejoice in our salvation, and we wait with hope.